Hi, it's um, Sunday afternoon. <clears throat> I'm going to see if I can finish up, um, if I have the strength to finish up uh, Mendelssohn, put it to bed. Um, um, today's my father's yard site, so I'll do it for that. And also I want to thank um, the Frager family, the Superior Frager family for um, providing Shabbos for us, help us out. My wife has her hands full taking care of me. And so it's very kind to you to help us with Shabbos. So I'm the Fragers, who, by the way, were my Shadchanim way back when. Uh, but this is my father is almost 50 years, 49th year at Uh <clears throat> We were talking about Mendelssohn in the uh, controversial period of his life, which is in the late 1770s, early 1780s. I mentioned the Chumash project, which um, he... Just went ahead and did, despite the fact that a lot of rabbis didn't agree. Actually, I mean, when I say it wasn't 100% true, I mean, he did have a skama from the rabbi of his community of, of Berlin. Uh, in Berlin at that time was a uh, still an autonomous, coercive community, the old-fashioned Kehilla, uh, but going through profound sociological changes in terms of the younger generation being estranged from Judaism. Uh, has nothing to do with Ascala, just has to do with the younger generation being estranged from Judaism for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and the guy who was the Rav there, Av Bezin, was actually one of the Gedolim, uh, I would say minor Gedolim of the 18th century, Tzvi Hershlemin. He's in the back of the Gemara, by the way. Um, who was like a nephew of Yaakov Emden from Super Yichas. He was in London and many other places. And uh, he was a person, I would say... Who uh, was a great Thomas Hoffman and all that, but uh, he was number one a moderate in general. Uh, as I mentioned before, there were people who um, had—I mean, big rabbis too—who had uh, semi-masculine tendencies. Although I hate to use that word because you say masculine, and the people listening podcast means on from, and it doesn't. Uh, just means they want a wider definition of of uh, Jewish, especially from the internal point of view. So if you're interested in Tanakh or Diktuk or things like that, that can make you a mosque, even though you're super from type of person. And even if you spend a lot of time learning Gemara, he's a good example of that. He liked poetry and all this little kind of stuff. Uh, the 18th century in general, the rabbinate was in the hands of the Richie Riches and their sons-in-law and brothers-in-law and that. You know, it was a, it was old boy network. And he was definitely a member of the old boy network. Um, the previous rabbi, David Frankel, who Mendelssohn was close with, the Carbonata, was like a cousin of his. They all had to do with, you know, very Hushiba-type families. His, his brother, I think, was the rabbi in Amsterdam, you know, that sort of thing. He was in, like, Flint. And was a cousin in a note of Yehuda. You see, they're all... It's all an old boy network. And it's like today, the Rebbe's marry each other, the Rosh Hashivas marry each other, you know how that goes. So, uh, but he was, as I say before, kind of a more of a moderate. And uh, he gave a come actually, uh, to, to the Chumash. So the other rabbis didn't like it, but he said it was okay. And he, he being in Berlin, you know, he said, listen, you got a younger generation, they don't know Hebrew. Uh, if they want to learn anything about the Bible, they have to use a Christian Bible or the Luther Bible. That's no good. 
If you have a Jewish Bible, that'd be better. You know, like I was mentioning in the last podcast, I would say in general <laughs> that um, the yeshivisha culture, as I would put it, the extremely narrow definition of Jewish is only Gemara, 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 always had marginal people that, you know, didn't like it or wanted to modify that. The best example I can give, um, this might even surprise you, who's a contemporary of Mendelssohn at this time? The Mitsudis. <laughs> the rabbi in, in Prague and in Germany. You know, the Mitsudis, uh, David, and the ba- that we all used when we were in elementary school and all that sort of thing. Uh, who's a rabbi in, a real super from rabbi in Prague, but he says, nobody knows Tanakh. And, or Nach, I should say. And it's like a dead door. Very, very few people are into that. And uh, I'm going to make a... I don't want to use the word dummy Tanakh, but you know what I mean? I'm going to give a very simple, straightforward shot. You know, based on the Radak and, pay, play, and people like that. And and open the Tanakh up for people who otherwise wouldn't. And it's a bestseller down till today. I think everybody uses the Matsudas. Isn't that right? Uh, and there's a guy saying... There's more than just Gamar, Gamar, Gamar. A person should know Nach. Um, see, see what I'm saying? It didn't have to be associated with ideological politics. But in the case of Mendelssohn, when he starts coming out, especially with a German translation, as opposed to the Matsudis, which was all Hebrew and just a simple and very direct uh, uh, Hebrew, user-friendly Hebrew, um, but instead you have that German translation at the, at the top in Hebrew letters. So that was considered like a big uh, uh, oppositional kind of phenomenon by many rabbis. And I told you all about that last time. But Mendelssohn, knowing the if I, the rabbinical world, the yeshiva world, was able to maneuver not to get any cherims or anything like that. Uh, and that, I would say, became the hallmark later of the Haskalah, that they were able to avoid getting cherims by, by appealing to the government or something like that to prevent that from happening. Uh, which leads us to the question of power, uh, p- politics, which is a function of power, and specifically the power of the rabbinate and of the Kehillis in general. Um, and herein lies a tale, because um, Mendelssohn, by this time, was uh, really a member of the Enlightenment, I mean, of the European Enlightenment. He's the only Jew. I mean, he was a player. He was a member in good standing of the Republic of Letters. There never was any other Jew like that. Certainly a from Jew who's a Shomer Shabbos. Shomer term, it's it's quite remarkable. Notice, he contributed to and participated in arguments, discussions, debates, essays, on all these cultural European type topics uh, and all the journals, all the rest of it. He was a macher and a half. Uh, Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, held of him. You know, he, he... he really was an anomaly. And mind you, he did this as on the side business. No, he had a nine-to-five job, as I mentioned before. <laughs> so it's, it's it's really quite remarkable. So he was at the height of his fame. In 1777, he took a a tour around Germany. It was received with tremendous chashivas by the Goyim everywhere. It's quite, it's, it's quite a story. Um, without, you know, c- cutting his beard, you know, Without bimavatar uh, on Torah mitzvahs, it's uh, just just interesting in that way. Now uh, the thing is like this: 
Uh, at that time, uh, he wasn't planning to give attention to the political side of the Jewish situation, but it happened, and with unexpected consequences of all sorts, which affect us down to the present day, at least in my opinion. I'll tell you what I mean. In 1779, I think it was, that would mean <clears throat> that he was, I guess, uh, 50. Okay? So he got a letter from France. At that time, from Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, Germany was a bunch of different little states. But France was one big kingdom. Centrally ruled. Louis Sixteenth, you know, Marie Antoinette. Husband. And in France... Officially speaking, they kicked the Jews out back in the 1300s. So there shouldn't be any Jews in France. It's not allowed. You know, like the Spanish did, the Portuguese. In spite of what I just said, things so transpired. I'm sure I've mentioned this in the past, that the French kingdom went through a military expansion in the 15, especially 16, 1700s. And if you look at the map, France was trying to reach to the Rhine River. That would give them a natural frontier. And they did, they were uh, half successful. Because in the 1700s, the French were able to conquer one way or the other, militarily and otherwise, what we call today Alsace and Lorraine, which is a big area. Now, the French wanted that for their own reasons to expand their border. But when they took over Alsace and Lorraine, basically they took over Alsace in the time of Louis XIV and Lorraine in the time of Louis XV, um, without going through the details. So they got a booby prize, a large Jewish community, about 40,000, 50,000 Jews. Uh, and very uh, traditional Jews, religious, I would even say semi-Hasidic, so to speak, in those years. And many Jews moved there under the French occupation. Now, the, the kings of France are very anti-Semitic, but they immediately discovered that the French army, which occupied these areas as a military zone, adding it to the Kingdom of France, required large supplies, what we would call today logistical network. Horses, food for the horses, weapons, uniforms, <clears throat> all that stuff for the French occupying forces. And immediately the Jews made it their business to be of service to the French army, because that's what Jews do. And they got them all the stuff they wanted in the right time, in the right place, at the right price. And so the French were like a little bit conflicted. On the one hand, maybe they should throw the Jews out because that's the rules of France. On the other hand, these Jews are of great utility. And they're not in France. Mamish, they're in the new territories of Alsace-Lorraine. Maybe sure you just leave them alone there since they're of such great use to the uh, French uh, military. And Lamai said they Paskin the second way. They let him alone. And so France, which is not supposed to have any Jews, turned out to have tens of thousands of Jews at one corner all the way in the east uh, near the Rhine River. There were also a few thousand Jews, um, Moranos, Conversos, in the southern part of France, in Bordeaux and Marseille in those areas. Uh, but they were much more assimilated having, you know, originally come in as Christians. And so they didn't stand out as much. But the Jews in Alsace and Lorraine 
were Jewish Jews. Like I say, they, they looked kind of Hasidic. Uh, they had their yeshivas. They had their uh, their Yiddishkeit, their very folk Yiddishkeit. Uh, Alsace remained the bastion of traditionalism for a long, long time. Long time. Uh, I never was there. I was supposed to do a trip to that part of the world. And the corona kicked in. Maybe later this year, if Rabban Shalom helps me and I feel up to it, maybe we'll do I'm thinking of doing a trip that will be partially in Alsace-Lorraine because a lot of Jewish history there. For example, the rabbi in Metz was the Shagasari, just to give me an idea of what I'm talking about. You heard the Shagasari. So, um, <clears throat> it was in this time that the French, the, the local guy hated the Jews, naturally. And so the local guy in Alsace-Lorraine were always trying to cause all kinds of trouble. I remember there was a guy named Hell. Isn't that a name? His name was Hell. Francois Hell or something like that. He was like the leader of the anti-Semites. And it was always touch and go. What will the French government do for the Jews? Will they add more taxes in Xeras? Will they go the other direction and ease things up? You know. Um, and it came a certain point in um, late 1770s where the king of France and the government want to do something anti-Jewish. Make it harder on the Jews. The Jews in Alsace, led by um, the army contractors, known as the Richie Riches, who couldn't speak French well. They were like, you know, in America, when I was young, they had all these refugees, as the expression used to go, you know, the guy cannot read, um, can't read or write English, but he can sign a check, and therefore he employs all the Harvard grads. They're his employees. You know, he had these guys with a natural business talent. And the main guy was Surf Bear, which is a French for probably Svi Hirsch. And I, th I did all this when we talked about Zinsheim, who was the chief rabbi later in France, uh, who was a, who was a brother-in-law of a Surf Bear. So imagine a whole network of a village and village and village and village all had some Jews in it, and they're all from... And they're all pretty, like I said before, you know, kind of yeshivish. Sort of, you know, the, the old school, the mocks of the Torah in the old way. And now they're hit with another gzera. So even the richy rich guys like Surf Fair, uh, even though they dealt with the French government and the army, but they spoke with a heavy accent, they couldn't write well. And so they wanted to appeal to the French government, but they didn't know how to write it well. So naturally, you go to write. You wrote to Moses Mendelssohn. You know French, you know European culture, you're respected by the Goyim. Write us a memorandum to the French government, making the case not to impose this new gazero on the Jews. In seventeen seventy nine, I think it was. And Mendelssohn, okay, yeah, I'm happy to help if I can. And what he did was, he got together with a Goyish friend. I told you. Mendelssohn was most unusual precisely in the fact that he had Geisha friends. Okay? He had Geisha friends from his philosophy stuff. At that time, Jews didn't have Geisha friends. They might have people who were not Jewish that they did business with, you know, in that kind of way, but not friends' friends. You know, you invite over your house, you go over them, and all this sort of stuff. Without violating kashras. So one of his friends and admirers was a guy named Christian Wilhelm Dohm, who was a macher in the Prussian government. I forget, he was a deputy secretary of the treasury or something like that. 
which was a pretty high post. So this is an educated German, a guy with a college education, who um, had an important post in the Prussian government of Frederick the Great. Frederick the Great being a big anti-Semite. And this guy, Dom, obviously was very uh, intellectual and philosophical. So that's why he'd be friends with our hero. And Mendelssohn got together with him and he said, listen, I was asked by the Jews of France to write a memo of French government. I want you to help me out. And uh, together, we should work on this. Uh, what would be the kind of letter to the French government that would produce the, the desired effect? What are the kind of arguments from a modern Enlightenment point of view that would show that it's in the interest of France not to impose this new gzeer on the Jews? And this guy, this guy, Christian Wilhelm Dunn, was happy to help. And together they wrote this memorandum. So they wrote this memo, and, um, and it worked. As a result of this, the French government reconsidered and was mavatal de gzeer, as we would say today. And everything was great. Now, listen closely to what I'm about to say. In the course of this whole business back and forth, because Surf Bear wrote to Mendelssohn, Mendelssohn wrote back, and so forth. So in the course of all this, Mendelssohn asked him the following question. You don't want the Gezeiro. I understand that. And we'll work on getting rid of it. But what do you actually positively want? In other words, the question Mendelssohn was raising is a fascinating one, which is, what does a Jew and Gullis consider the ideal political situation? What is a Jew and Gullis Consider not, not there is no state of Israel, so what do you consider the perfect world? Now, perfect political system. I'm sure most people today, if they can take themselves out of the Israel thing, and let's say most of you are living in America who are listening to this, or, um, or come from America or from England or places like that, so you'd say, the best possible goal of situation, politically speaking, is one when the Jews have freedom and complete equality with everybody else and there's no anti-Semitism. And that way, you can be a good citizen, but you can be as firm as you want and practice your own religion and all that sort of thing without any impediment. And everybody's happy. You didn't do anything against the country. Um, you pay your taxes. You obey the laws. But you also have a situation where you can be uh, Shammar Shabbos, uh, you can enjoy the, 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 the mitzvahs, and all the rest of it. Agreed? But suppose I told you that a couple hundred years ago, Zelo not only is it impossible that there's no, it's impossible that there should be a state of Israel, but it was also impossible at that time that there should be <clears throat> equality in citizenship for various reasons that I'll explain later, I hope. But let's just say the situation was such that free and equal citizenship, like you have, for example, today in the United States, was not up for discussion. It was taken for granted it would not be there. So having said that, I repeat the question, what to you would be the best possible political setup? And the answer a Jew would give once upon a time long ago would be, um, maximum autonomy, what they call today Sharia law, that let us Jews um, live as a separate corporatist entity, 
so that we in Alsace, for example, should have our own Kehillahs, and the French state should recognize the Kehillah, and the Kehillah should have its own basin system, and they should adjudicate all the laws and conduct within the Jewish community, and the Jews should have the freedom to practice their religion as a state within a state, not disloyal to the state, but nevertheless a state within a state, in which you're a member of the Jewish community, let's say, for example, of Strasbourg or France or Metz. Actually, the Jews are not allowed in Strasbourg. Let's say Metz. And you pay your taxes and all that stuff to the Jewish community in Metz. And that community pays it to the French government. And to the degree possible, you live within the framework of something called the Jewish community of Metz or wherever. So in other words, the Jewish Kehillah should continue as it always was. A Kehillah, I remind you, was an autonomous, coercive community. Uh, you are not allowed to be Michal Shabbos. If you tried to open a store on Shabbos in the old days, the Jewish community could close it. Physically, they could penalize you almost in any way they want. They could certainly cause you to pay a fine. They probably could beat the heck out of you in many cases. And other sorts of physical and other criminal sanctions and the state should be okay with it based on the idea of just as a Catholic can't violate the Catholic law, so a Jew shouldn't violate the Jewish law. And if a Catholic at that time were to violate the Catholic laws, there would be some legal punishment. So the same thing should apply mutatis mutandis for the Jews. That was the general idea. And that's what Surf Bear wrote to Mendelssohn and Dome. You know, let us continue the old-fashioned Jewish way uh, let us have our autonomous coercive communities. So it's not the French state that runs us directly, but the Jewish, the Jews run their own lives directly. But running your own lives Jewishly means you run it according to like a Jewish little maluch over there. And in every community, whoever emerges as the bosses, they should be the one to write the rules and, 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 and boss everybody else around. With all the pluses and minuses that go to with that system. This is what... Uh, uh, Surf Bear and the other guys wrote to Mendelssohn. And that is what they asked the French government to do. And to a certain degree, they were Matzliach. Now, um, this was a happy ending. And Mendelssohn was stimulated as a result of this event. Remember, this happened in 1779, 1780. So the guy was around 50. And this actually put into his mind, I would say for the first time in a realistic way, the following question. Um, is it possible, perhaps, to have some upgrade or improvement in the Jewish political status in Europe, the different European states? It wasn't possible at that time, Mendelssohn was aware of this, like everybody else, that Jews would have free and equal equality, citizenship with everybody else, primarily because Europe at that time conceived itself as a Christian entity. So if it's a Christian religious entity, if France is a Christian thing, if England is a Christian thing, if Prussia or Austria or Portugal or Spain or Poland or even the Netherlands or Sweden or anybody else all define themselves as Christian entities, um, then obviously somebody's not a Christian can't be an equal part of it any more than if we had a Jewish halachic state. 
from the halachi theory point of view, a ger tosho can't be a full citizen. He can be an, a, a, a tolerated citizen, a ger tosho, but he can't be a full citizen. And lo misra, he can't have, hold office. He can't vote, and that, that sort of thing. No sororo. And the Jews at that time used to say like this, today the Christians are on top and we're in the bottom, tomorrow the Mashiach come be the other way around. But the idea that the state should be indifferent to your religion and that all people live in the state should be equal from a secular point of view, lo ba To the most, a guy like Mendelssohn could do was to say, let's have an upgrade. You know, there were so many stupid laws still in the books. I mean, so many in Germany and elsewhere. The free Jewish can't live here, can't do this, can't do that, pay extra taxes. You know, Mendelssohn, when he vis- visited one of the cities in Germany, had to pay like $1,000 for the right just to enter the city in Dresden. When the city found that it was Mendelssohn, he said, oh, you're an exception. They gave him the money back. But that was because he was already famous. A regular Jew, if you just want to go to another town, you had to pay through the nose. So if you don't like paying on the Verrazano and all that, Imagine if it was only Jews who paid, and if they paid a lot more than whatever you pay over there. That's that's how life was lived in those days. The Leibzol, as they called it, all kind of other stupid taxes, all kind of restrictions. Jews had been used to it, so they just rolled with a punch. But when you look at it objectively, the Jews were subject to all kind of legal um, discrimination. Now I repeat, if the shoe had been on the, on the other foot, the Jews would have done it to the others. But the shoe was on the Geisha foot. So, with all this in mind, um, Mendelssohn began to say like this, we live in a period of the Enlightenment. It's already 1780. So the Enlightenment has been around for many years. The Enlightenment is a movement with great respect, held, enjoyed great respect in Europe. And the idea behind the Enlightenment is to use logic and reason to bring about reforms in life. Health, education, welfare, economics, religion, uh, war, even uh, the penal institutions, the education, all, all, you know, everything out there can be improved, which is the truth. And every subject in the world, agriculture, treatment of the peasantry, uh, the middle class, um, you know, trades, manufacturing versus agriculture, labor, management relationships, uh, slavery and non-slavery, I mean, you name it, everything was up for discussion based on the idea that um, we're going to produce arguments to try to persuade the rulers who were absolute rulers that these that reforms of one type or another are in the interests of the rulers themselves. So, suppose you're a dictator of a country and um, you have a one-lane highway. I could go to you and say, you know, it would be better for your commerce and your transportation to make it a two-lane highway or a four-lane highway. And you'll make more money eventually because it increased traffic. So let's say the king or whoever it was, the dictator, agreed with me and did it. This has nothing to do with being a liberal conservative. It has to do with utility. I just showed you how you can make the transportation better. doesn't matter what kind of form of government you're talking about. It'll be better for the economy and better for people's lives. So, that was 18th century. That was Mendelssohn's time. The kings of Prussia, for example, were absolute dictators, but they were interested in practical ideas of improving things. If you can figure out a way to improve health for the public, 
the king would be in favor of that. It's got nothing to do with politics. That's how things were viewed at that time. So every discussion in life is, is was raised in one form or another by somebody in a book and another guy in a newspaper article and another guy in a published essay and so forth. And it was out there on what I would call the internet of the 18th century. But one subject had not been broached and that was the Jews. Is it better, is there a better way for European Geisha states to treat the Jews? Notice I said a better way, meaning is there a more utilitarian way in which the Geisha state can get more benefit out of the Jews than it's currently getting? And if there is, why not do it? It's a classic 18th century um, Enlightenment kind of approach. It's got nothing to do necessarily being a liberal or not. It has to do with making them better citizens, more productive, produce more taxes, things of that nature. Now, no one had thought of the Jews because all the people in the Enlightenment were not Jewish and they all held the Jews in tremendous contempt. Jews were clannish, they looked funny, they were believing in the Talmud, in the Kabbalah, they're weirdos, they're antisocial, you name it. Here comes Mendelssohn in like 1779, 1780, fresh from the triumph of, uh, of appealing to the French state. And he said, you know, we should try to build on this and maybe put this out in the public sphere. And it generated discussion. Is there a way to be better uh, for, uh, with the Jews? Not to be nicey-nice to them, because nobody cared about that. They weren't Jewish. But is there a way to be nicey-nice based on the argument that that'll produce better taxes or better outcome one way or the other? The arguments from utility, not from stomp bleeding heart liberalism. So, um, as I say, encouraged by success with the French uh, episode, he, he said, let's write a book making the Enlightenment case for a better treatment of the Jews. Not equality. And not civil rights, because I, again, it's but maybe easing up a little bit, getting rid of some of the bad taxes, with the argument that if you get rid of those bad taxes, the Jews will do more economic activity and the result will be more revenue for the state. So if you make me pay all those stupid taxes and that produces less economic activity, you'll make a million dollars a year. But if you get rid of those taxes and the money is then spent by the Jews on more commercial enterprises which produce taxes instead of a million a year you get two million or three million so it's in your interest to do this that's the veldt of mendelssohn's time i hope you understand what i just said and so um he was a clever guy mendelssohn and he said to his friend the christian uh, friend christian Wilhelm dome if i write it it won't get any traction because people say naturally he's jewish so he wants to make the case for the Jews. You do it. I'll help you, but you do it. If it's published under a Geisha title, that'll command more respect because you're not Jewish. You understand? Which was true. And again, Dome was willing to do it. And so he wrote a book, which he published in 1779, 1780, whatever it was, called Über die Bürgerliche Verbesserung der Juden. Proposals for a civic upgrade for the Jews. Bürgerliche a, a burger, a, a, a member of a city, a, a, a civilian upgrade for the Jews. 
in which he offered arguments, um, intellectual arguments, for easing up on the Jews in various ways. Not for complete civil rights or equality, but for uh, getting rid of a lot of these uh, extra taxes and economic restrictions that Jews and others go into this business or that business and things of that nature. And the argument was an argument from utility. That the result would be better for the for the Jews and it would be better for us. Are the Jews stupid, ugly, clannish, uh, you know, obnoxious? Yes. But why? Because our laws kind of push them in that kind of direction. Um, if you deny a Jew the right to participate in a regular business, don't be surprised if, the, if they'll get involved in monkey business. They go on with smuggling and all kind of other illegal things. I mean, what's the guy supposed to do? You won't let him you know, participate in a regular economy. Don't be surprised if he goes for illegal economy. Arguments of that sort. Uh, the book is around. I think it's translated. Uh, it's a little old style, but nevertheless, for the first time, a book was written by a Christian intellectual arguing for an improvement in the status of the Jews. An upgrade, as he would say. Uh, it's very interesting. The book was published. It got a lot of reviews. The king of Prussia, Frederick the Great, said, I don't want to hear none of this. Hell with the Jews. That was his policy in general, and he kept that till the day he died. But um, having said that, others, you know, reviewed it and said, maybe there's some good ideas over here. Of course, it also spoke, uh, provoked a counterattack by, I would say, thoughtful German writers like Michaelis, who... Uh, I wouldn't exactly say they're anti-Semitic, uh, but they didn't like Jews, you know. And they offered arguments against that. Some were stupid, like the Jew can't be a citizen or upgrade because they can't participate in the army. And anyway, they're too short, fat, and ugly to be soldiers. So, you know, that won't work out. I mean, some of those arguments were silly. Uh, but other arguments were not. And Dome had to deal with the question, could a Jew really be a member of a Christian society? if they hope for Mashiach to come tomorrow and move back there to Israel. You know, all kinds of interesting things. I repeat, he said the Jews have a lot of bad qualities, but he blamed that on the discrimination against the Jews, which is an interesting argument. Today you call it a bleeding heart liberal. Uh, but that's what he did. Now really, a lot of this came from Mendelssohn, but he was smart enough not to publish under his own name, but to publish under the name of his friend, the guy, Christian Wilhelm Dohm. I say he was again like number three at the at the Treasury Department. He was a he was a big shot. He was a, a respected intellectual, as we would say today. And for the first time, the question about the Jews was out there in the public forum as a, as a as a question for the Enlightenment to deal with. And you know, in France, this guy wrote an essay, and that guy, and people wrote about it. Now, as I said before, in most of the German states, there was no response. Because Prussia, Frederick, they didn't want to listen to it. But on the other hand, next door to Germany was the Austrian Empire, the Habsburg Empire, which was the great empire composing Austria and Bohemia and, um, and Hungary, and a little bit later in Galicia. So there's a ton of Jews over there. And the ruler of the Austrian Empire... From 1740-1780 had been Maria Teresa, who I talked about a couple months ago, I think. And she was violently anti-Jewish. 
she liked a note of Yehuda, it seems, you know, based on the idea. If I have to have a Jew, at least him is better than the others. But she didn't like Jews. But her son, who succeeded her, was Joseph II, a very famous person. If you remember Amadeus, he was the emperor in Amadeus. And, uh, and he prided himself on being a utilitarian. And he read the book, and he was thinking in the following way. How can I get more out of my Jews? Out of my Jews. As it is, he had like 50,000 Jews in um, Bohemia, another 50,000 in Hungary, and probably uh, half a million or a quarter of a million in, in Galicia. So he had a lot of Jews. Um, and most of them because it would be a pain in the neck. And he had no respect for Jews. But he's interested in the argument of utility. How can I make it that the Jews be better fit into uh, the country in which I rule, the empire in which I rule. And under these um, impact of, of Dome's ideas, the Emperor Joseph II issued what he called the uh, Tolerance Patent, the Edict of Toleration in 1781-1782, in which for the first time ever, a Christian ruler said, I'm willing to entertain giving the Jews an upgrade, but only in the context of a quid pro quo. I'm willing to move partially towards the Jews, but I need to see the other, they move partially towards me. Which means he was looking for a certain amount of um, a certain amount of assimilation or acculturation. Now, if he's talking about 1% or 2%, big deal. If he's talking about 50%, 100%, then it's a big deal. So the question is how much. But one thing was clear, that he was not moved by ideas like Thomas Jefferson, you know, the Jews should have free citizenship simply because everyone's entitled to their own religious beliefs. He said, the heck with that. He was um, a Catholic, and this is a Catholic country. I got a lot of Jews here, unfortunately. I'm willing to figure out ways in which it would be better for the Jews, but I also want the Jews to be better for me. And so basically what he wanted was a quid pro quo in the context of, of uh, weakening the cultural insularity. That's how I would describe it. Which happened to be the agenda of Moses Mendelssohn, but not in the same way. Mendelssohn was very suspicious. He said, I think this is a schmad that the emperor is talking about um, emancipation, but he really means amalgamation, as he said. Which means they want you to give up this and that, learn German and all the rest of it, within the context, hopefully, of weaning them away from the Jewish religion. But many of the Balabatim, when the emperor said, if you give up this, that, and the other, I'll abolish some of the taxes, I'll let you into any university, I'll let you have better conditions for where you can live, and things like that. They said, this is a great deal. Let's take it. So, what I'm trying to emphasize is that these first steps towards it would eventually amounted to the Jews getting civil rights, not right away, but it happened, took place in the context of a demand for a quid pro quo. And this is very unfortunate because it means that, as you and I know very well, in the modern era, which was after the death of Mendelssohn, the Jews in Europe would eventually get civil rights, but it would be at the cost of their Yiddishkeit. And uh, and that's what happened. So everybody went off to Derek and so on and so forth, not simply because of the granting of civil rights, but that's a big part of it. Okay, and 
to give you an example of what I'm talking about, one of the things the Emperor Joseph II said was, I want the Jews, all Jewish children now, to get a secular education in addition to a Jewish education. I'm not telling you you can't have a cheder or yeshiva, but also you have to have a public school, the equivalent of a secular education, which the Jews were horrified about. But then they changed their mind. They're not so horrified. So the Rabbanim, like the Nodav Yudah, tried to fight a tooth and nail, but the Balavadim wouldn't listen to him. And as a result, there began in the 1780s and then picked up later on a trend in which um, the Jewish schooling switched from just Gemara, Gemara, Gemara to an ever-increasing amount of secular stuff as well. You know, certainly reading, writing, uh, arithmetic, and German and all the rest of it. And the state, for the first time, poked its nose in what's happening with the internal Jewish community, internal Jewish culture, with uh, huge consequences, as we know. So um, all the fights that Mendelssohn had with, let's say, the Nidabiyu and the others, Sub Rosa, about the Chumash, all the rest of it, became irrelevant in the context of what I just talked about. You say you don't want the kids to learn German, therefore don't produce a, a Chumash in German. Guess what? The Austrian government and eventually the other German governments are going to force you to teach German um, either within the day school or without the day school, but it's going to happen. And so the question about uh, deteriorating the cultural insularity was no longer a question for a guy named Mendelssohn or something like that, but it was part of megatrends that are going to hit the Jews from the uh, from the Gaisha state. You understand? For its own reasons. Believe me, the Emperor Joseph II didn't read Mendelssohn and then decided to teach the kids German. He wanted to do that anyway. Now, Mendelssohn was right. Really, 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 a guy like uh, the Austrian Emperor... Uh, you know, Joseph II, I mean, he would like them all to convert. But if not, at least weaken the traditional Jewish framework. And that, in general, is what happened. The Jews in Europe, as we all know, generally speaking, entered the 19th century, um, dropping all connection with Yiddishkeit. So it wasn't that they were learned about Machal Shabbos. They weren't learning anymore. They didn't know much Jewish stuff. Now, there's other reasons for that as well. There are. But this is one of them. And this is why Mendelssohn became associated in the, in the popular mind of the Haredi world with these trends, even though he didn't cause this trend, uh, except in a screwball way. You know, he wrote that book in favor of helping the Jews get a better situation, and the Austrian emperor on his own decided to implement it to his particular way. But generally speaking, the, German, the uh, European states, for the most part, kind of did insist on a quid pro quo, formally or informally. <clears throat> and, you know, we're letting you have more rights, but what are you giving up from your Jewish particularism? Uh, there's a lot more to it than I'm saying, but that's like the heart of it. And all of a sudden, therefore, in the last five years of his life, Mendelssohn was in a maelstrom of controversy and uh, change raging through the European communities uh, thanks to the mega trends that I just described. Uh, the kind of, I would say, liberal easing up on the Jews, Stalmazoi, just because they're human beings, that did not really happen. But uh, instead it happened in the form that I just said before with the Austrian Emperor Joseph II. But now I have to take my words back because eventually it happened unexpectedly pretty soon. But before I go there, uh, 
when Dome wrote his book, he said that an upgrade for the Jews would mean that you would leave the Jews with their kehillahs, just you would ease up on the taxes and the other gezeras. So he, for a Jew to have autonomous coercive communities with the coercion that goes along with that, is actually a plus. And an old-fashioned from Jew once once felt that way. Um, I think most of the listeners to the podcast probably don't feel that way today. Uh, I wouldn't want to live in Baltimore under a situation where even a basin could go and, uh, you know, impose uh, criminal penalties on you or something, put you in jail or something like that uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Now, maybe I'm wrong. From an old-fashioned from point of view, you should want that. But it's it's not push it. And certainly that's the way we look at things nowadays, I think. Now, I bet you there'll be some listeners of the podcast who'll disagree, and I understand there is room for disagreement. But generally speaking, nowadays, most of us are against coercion. Although the Torah is not. But still, we would prefer what we call today Kiruv or something like that. Rather than put a gun to a guy's head and says, you better keep Shabbos or I'll shoot you. You know, even though technically speaking, an economy. So it's very complicated. And Mendelssohn himself was kind of called to task by his critics and say, here you are arguing for uh, the fact that the Jews should get a, a more religious freedom. But you're not in favor of religious freedom. As a from Jew, you're in favor of coercion within a Jewish context for Nikola. So that kind of sabotages your liberal arguments and appeals for um, more religious toleration, more religious freedom. You just want Sharia law for the Jews. These are, that's a good taina. And it made Mendelssohn give a lot of thought to it. And in 1782, the following year, um, he wrote his, a, a famous essay because they translated into German the uh, Menashe ben Israel, uh, Vindicate Judeorum, his defense of Judaism. Remember, we did Menashe ben Israel, the Dutch rabbi who persuaded Cromwell to let the Jews in England. And Menashe ben Israel was actually the only other figure I can think of who was kind of a member of the Republic of Letters, although nowhere near the level of Mendelssohn, who was Mamash a player. I, I'm not going to go into all this, it would bore you, but he was a Mamash a player in the intellectual world of the 18th century. Um, <clears throat> the pantheism strike, all this stuff. And um, make a long story short, Mendelssohn wrote an essay in which he basically said um, that I'm actually, Judaism does not really demand, um, how should I put it, um, coercion. Or at least, he was like Palgina de Bora. Judaism maybe has coercion only in regard to deed, not regard to creed. So notice how shkafa-wise, don't say in the Chumash what you must believe. Just as what you must do. So maybe a kehillah should be able to close somebody down on Shabbos. But if a guy said, I don't take heaven to hell literally, or something like that, I don't know what exactly. Uh, it can't be that the Beisden should be able to punish him for that. Because the Chumash is about Tariyag Mitzvos, deeds, not about thoughts. Now, that's not exactly true. It's true for the most part. There are certain uh, belief things that are mitzvahs over there. On the other hand, it doesn't say uh, that the basin can force people to uh, espouse certain beliefs, especially because for Mendelssohn, 
like anybody else in the Enlightenment of the 18th century, um, belief is private. Uh, the old-fashioned argument of John Locke, uh, which goes like this. Look at me, me, talking now. If you saw me, you'd see my face, my nose, my hands. So that's visible. But if I could you could you tell me what I'm thinking? That's not visible. And who did that God? So God obviously wants that to be private. You know? So uh my physical deeds, God exposes to, to the to the naked eye. Anybody can see it. So that can be subject to control. But what I'm thinking should not be subject to control. There should be left to my freedom. Uh and therefore Judaism, unlike Christianity said, uh, does not impose, imp you know, impose punishments for, for wrong beliefs, which is an interesting argument. Uh, it's been somewhat true in Judy Jewish history, but mainly because we've never had a church with a hierarchy and an organized theology. The Rambam, as you know, held very strongly that you have to hold to his thirteen beliefs, or else you can get into big trouble. But it never took off, not at the level of a basin going and punishing somebody for it. Now, I'm skipping a few details, but I don't want to get go down that rabbit hole. This was the main argument of Mendelssohn, that Judaism is, is a religion of, of deed rather than creed. Uh, the legislation was revealed, not the belief system. And again, the Ramah doesn't hold that way, but that's what Mendelssohn argued. And he even wrote a book about it called Jerusalem. Uh, that's the name of the book. In which he made the case uh, more and more that uh, there shouldn't be rabbinical control, kahila control, over Amunos Videos. Okay? And the truth of the matter is, he went so far as to say the following, that uh, even the Choshen Mishpat, you could leave to the Geisha state, which was a really radical departure. Matter of fact, Mendelssohn was asked by the chief rabbi Berlin in 1779, to write a German summary of the Chosha Mishwa, basically. Something like that. Chosha Mishwa plus property-related parts of uh, Eben Ezra, let's say that way. And uh, why did the Prussian state want that? <clears throat> this is part of a, a Europe-wide trend. In the second half of the 1700s, certainly in the last quarter, the European states began to feel uncomfortable with the idea of a Jewish state within a state. And they wanted the Jewish Kehillahs to be more and more coordinated with the secular and uh, royal authorities. This happened in Germany in many places. It happened in uh, France with the Chagasarie. It happened with the Nota Behuda, who had to write a whole <coughs> um, thing in German about the uh, marriage and divorce laws for the Kaiser, for the Emperor Joseph II, and in Mendelssohn's case, the Prussian government wanted like a restatement of the property-related parts of Jewish law. You know, Choshen Mishpat, marriage and divorce as relates to property, things like that. And he wrote something up. But then the Prussians said like this, okay, now that we know the basic idea uh, from this book, which is very well written, so if worse comes to worse, we can give the final Pesach in property cases. And they proceeded to do so, which really made the Jewish basin seem like a fifth wheel. And uh, and Mendelssohn said it's not necessary to have the Chosha Mishpat. Now, what Mendelssohn described is the way things are today, and it is modern, because you don't really have a Chosha Mishpat unless you feel like participating in there. 
there's a big mitzvah called Ela Mishpatim Asher Tosim Lefneim, but nevertheless, a lot of people don't. And the basin system in America is not a great situation, as we all know. Uh, or probably in Israel, for all I know, but certainly in America. <clears throat> Here's a guy like Mendelssohn for the first time challenging things that have been basic part of Judaism for a long time, and doing so because of the spirit of the age. If you're asking for freedom of religion for the Jews, then you should ask also be, in order to be consistent, you should be in favor of freedom of religion uh, of the Jews from other Jews, from the Basins. And he and he, he said, yeah, you're right. So this already is pushing him into um, very controversial territory because you're coming out that you don't need Chosh uh, Mishpat and um, you also don't need a situation in which the Jewish courts, Jewish community can control what people think Hashkafa-wise, as we said before, only what can they do Lamaisa. Now, in the Lamaisa area, he said the Jewish courts should have the power because I tell you, he he says over and over again, he says, when it comes to legislation, you know, he believed in the Torah, so you got to do it. But anything that's not exactly that way, so you don't have to do it. So you see what I'm saying, when he's, the whole thing got like, you know, kind of uh, icy-dicey, iffy, and I would say really put him at odds with most of the Rabbanim at that time, who wanted to keep the old system going, uh, in which case we have as much, uh, uh, you know, autonomous powers as possible. But autonomy means you have the right to course members of the Jewish community. And as time went on, Mendelssohn was more and more out of, out of, uh, uh, you know, out of comfort with that. And he emerged as a spokesman of those who disagree with it. Although I'll tell you again, if this happened in Baltimore or somewhere else today, you probably find a lot of people that agree with Mendelssohn, you know, uh, if if you've ever had a bad experience at Basin, let's put it that way, or something like that. So it's kind of tricky because, on the other hand, so he, he was touching on highly tense areas. Now, mind you, the Jewish community, traditional Judaism, had uh, survived and flourished to whatever degree for century after century, certainly among the Ashkenazim, based on a chair with four legs, A, B, C, D. The four legs were uh, fundamentalism, uh, nomianism, the commitment to, to laws, halacha, autonomous coercive communities, and cultural insularity. But here comes a guy named Moses Mendelssohn. If you follow what I've said in these last three podcasts, then enechnami, fundamentalism, he does believe in. And even nomianism he believes in. But he does not believe in, 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 in uh, cultural insularity. So remove that chair, that leg from the chair. So instead of the chair having four legs, now it's got three. Can the chair stand up with three legs? It can. It's not so simple, but it can. Wait a minute. But now he's also against autonomous coercive communities. Or at least he's really weakening them. So can I, can I sit on a chair with two legs? And a third one, which is very weak and wobbly, not really. You get what I'm saying? Not really. And I think he had a failure of imagination because he didn't give thought. If you get rid of all these things you don't like in Jewish life, what's going to take its place? And Mendelssohn was the type of guy, which you see all the Jews will go off the derech and they'll all become Goyim and, and intermarry all the rest. Of it. He would not consider that a success. So uh, 
I repeat, he died fairly young, and it would be fascinating to know what he would have said in reaction to events that happened not long after he died. But we'll never know that. Now, I'll tell you where I'm going with this. <clears throat> he died <clears throat> in 1785 in the middle of, you know, being a big macher in the uh, European Enlightenment movement, uh, being a controversial but widely admired guy within the Jewish community. Um, I'll say it again. As the 1780s was going by, the arguments against the Chumash that he produced were actually weakening by the 1790s and early 1800s. Even from Jews said it was not a bad idea. And their whole articles, you'd be surprised, in the 19th century, many famous Rabbonim uh, used to buy and read Mendelssohn's Chumash. I mean, Sam Stravel Hirsch, I mean, you know, Biki Vega, I mean, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be, be quite shocked. Uh, Mordecai Bennett gave a Haskama to the reprinting of it. Uh, you know, because Batson, there was nothing wrong with it. Batson. And the idea that it's causing a deterioration in cultural insularity, that deterioration was coming anyway. Okay? Certainly in Germany and Central Europe. Maybe perhaps not so much in Eastern Europe, but certainly in Germany and Central Europe. That deterioration was coming anyway. So it depends where and when you were and your attitude towards the <clears throat> Mendelssohn Chumash. But um, I would say that by the time you get to the middle of the 1780s, he had collected around him a whole chevre of young people who looked to him like a hero. They were not from... This one of the big tinies. People who grew up in Berlin or similar places, often from a richie rich type background. Uh... They certainly didn't have his yeshiva-type education. That makes all the difference in the world. If you're not exposed to some sort of what you and I today would call yeshiva-type education, whether for boys or girls, you just look at things very differently. And looking back now the last 200 and 250 years, the four, um, the four uh, 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 chairs of the uh, four legs of the chair have been sort of replaced by yeshivaism or something like that, which is one big leg, you know, which can all, imagine a, a chair with a large thing in the middle, you know, a big round uh, thing holding up. I mean, that can even be one could hold it up. Uh, Mendelssohn himself had had a yeshiva education. So he took a lot of things for granted, but his kids did not. And the young people around him did not. And they talked and moved away from Torah mitzvahs. And he must have known about it. And maybe he was flattered that, you know, there are people who are interested in him. Maybe figuring his crazy way he could be Makar of them. I don't know. But his own kids, you know, moved away from the old Yiddishkeit, as is famous. And most of them ended up intermarrying after his death, not during his lifetime. Uh, and so he left a very complex, funny kind of figure. Now, here's the thing. Everything I'm talking about today has revolved around politics and civil rights and the lack thereof and all the rest of it. Uh, when Mendelssohn died from a cold <clears throat> in 1785, <clears throat> if you look at his tombstone, it's all in Hebrew, you know. Um, so, okay, he by this time he was a partner in a business. He was, I would say, fairly well-to-do. He was a hush of a balabas in the community, member of the board of directors. Uh as far as the rabbi was concerned, he got along with him, although it's a complicated story because the Rav, Tzvi Hirsch the Av Beisden, 
he kind of was okay with the Mendelssohn Chumash, but one of Mendelssohn's friends, and this way it gets so weird, in 1782, uh, Naftali Hurst Wesley, uh, who had who had, had a, a yeshiva education, by the way, under Jonas and Ibshitz, believe it or not, uh, he was a friend of Mendelssohn's, and he wrote Vayikra in the Mendelssohn Chumash. He wrote the Pirish on it. And it's not bad, actually, uh, as you'll see. See, he came out with a whole uh, famous essay called Divrei Shalom in which he argued for a restructuring of Jewish education, a replacement of haters and things like that with a well-organized system of Jewish education with the emphasis like a pyramid. At the bottom, you learn a little bit of Limudi Kodesh and a lot of Limudi Chol. As you get towards the top of the pyramid, uh, more and more people drop away because they'll go off to business or something like that. And But at the top, you'll have the few who are really interested in becoming rabbis and Jewish intellectuals. And when they get closer to the top, I guess what you and I would call high school, that's when they start learning Gemara. And those who really want to pursue it will pursue in a rabbinical college or, or yeshiva or something like that, post-high school. And that's where they'll learn their shots and post-game. Because those are the very few who are going to actually occupy the situation with it. It's kind of an enlightenment reform of Jewish education. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, all hell broke loose. And this isn't Mendelssohn never or anything like that. And the rabbis all condemned him. And he was, Wesley was, I've said it many times, Wesley was not a bad guy. He was not, and he wasn't unfrum, but he was stupid. Okay. You can, you can have that. Uh, he was very stupid. He wasn't a bad person. And he meant well, but he was stupid. And, uh, for example, he said, uh, which he interpreted to mean, any Tamachachim that doesn't have a secular education is worse than a Nevela. Whoa! You really want to say that? Right? So the Vilna Gong, for example, I mean, is, is worse than a Nevela? Is, is that, you really want to say that? Uh, oh, hold on for a second. Uh, where was I? The uh, so he shot his mouth off. What he really needed was an editor. You understand? A lot of times, people write something, myself included, and afterwards you show it to somebody, and he's like, "You really want to say that?" I said, "Oh boy, how did I write such a dumb, stupid thing?" Uh, it can happen. I'll say it again. He was not a bad person, and he and he was even a from guy, but he was dumb, and he didn't have an editor. And when he published this whole idea, it was like a bull in a china shop. You want to totally destroy um, what we would call yeshiva education, that they shouldn't learn anything, certainly in terms of Gemara, until you get to high school and all that sort of thing. Assuming that anybody would be left who even wants to. Uh, it was just, you know, like I say, it's the application of enlightenment principles in a well-meant way to an area which you just didn't understand the nature of it. And uh, this was in 1782. And they wanted to put him in Cherem. And again, Mendelssohn and, and his uh, buddies, they, they knew the rabbinical politics. And they were able to get the Gaisha governments to prevent that from happening. And uh, in the case of the rabbi Berlin, Mendelssohn stuff was okay, but this really drove him crazy. And he wanted to put him in Cherem. And Mendelssohn blocked it, you know, with the board of directors. And the rabbi quit. And uh, 
and what do you call it? He saw him moving there to Israel. And all the richy riches in the Kehillah went and begged him, don't run away, please stay. He ended up staying in the end. Uh, but the whole thing was like a funny kind of a parsha. Now Mendelssohn knew what I just said, which is the guy's not bad. He just was uh, uh, impolitic in his language. Okay? I don't think Mendelssohn had felt Really? A Nevela is better than the Nota Behuda? I mean, really? He didn't hold like that. But Mendelssohn was always too smart ever to use a language like that. This guy, Naftali Hertz Wesley, was not. And he wrote an apology later on, this and that and the other. I can tell you the Gedolim, the Nota Behuda, wanted to strangle him. Uh, but he couldn't say anything publicly. He hints at it in some of his speeches. Uh, we have private letters I saw that were published in that Carlin Stolen magazine, what's it called, Base Army Huda or something like that, uh, from the Nodavi Huda and uh, Hafla and all those uh, people. You know, in other words, the big gadol among each other cussed this guy out and damned him to hell and back. Uh, but publicly, they couldn't do anything because the state prohibited the excommunications and things of this nature. Now, the funny thing is like this. I'll say it again. The guy was stupid. He didn't mean bad. And he wrote other things which were not bad. And he did write the, the part of Vayikra for Mendelssohn's Komish. Believe you me, in the 19th century, many Gedolim used that Sefer. The Ksav Kabbalah, Sam Sreifel. Sam Sreifel Hirsch is actually a, a fan, believe it or not, of Naftali Hirsch Wesley. Uh, Rabbi Ruderman, I remember, used to like his poetry. It's funny. You know what I'm saying? What is Treif in one moment is not necessarily Treif in another. Now, sometimes that's not true. What sometimes was Treif in one moment is Treif in another. So these things fluctuate. You have to know a lot of the historical nuances uh, from the times. But uh, this is why Mendelssohn left such a, a funny legacy. Now, here's my point. He died in 1785. All of his ideas about uh, Jewish autonomy and upgrading Jewish rights, uh, all that sort of political stuff, seemed like a pipe dream because... Frederick the Great was still the king of Prussia. He died a year later. There was no way they were going to give the Jews any kind of civil rights. After his death, the Jewish community sort of like begged for some rights. And many of them were even willing to convert halfway to Christianity in order to get it. It's pretty disgusting. Uh, that's old Parsha by itself. And I would say his followers in Talmudim were like the worst legacy, you know, because he said like this, if that's who his followers were, he must have been a jerk. Even though he was a Shem Mitzvah, but they weren't. Uh, but this was going on. Four years after his death, the most unusual thing happened. The French Revolution, the storming of the Bastille in July of 1789. So Mendelssohn died in 1785. And four years later, the whole world turned upside down because when the French made the revolution against the king and the queen, eventually killing them and killing all the aristocrats and depriving the church of all its property, and remaking France totally. So, all of a sudden, the ideas that Mendelssohn had put out there, and Christian Dome had put out there, uh, and some others had picked up the ball and discussed in the course of the 1780s, uh, wasn't Abbe Gregoire, there were, you know, these are well-known uh, uh, phenomena. Uh, used to have uh, essays in France, what's the best way of dealing with the Jews and all this. So, all of a sudden... These ideas got legs where they hadn't had before. And five years after the death of Mendelssohn, 
in a totally unexpected fashion, France gave the Jews complete and total civil rights. And it was the idea he put out there, which when he died was beyond Hasaga even, all of a sudden became reality. Now Mendelssohn died young. He could have easily lived another 10, 20 years. And then it would be really, really interesting how he would judge you know, what was happening. But all of a sudden the Jews in France found themselves with complete uh, you know, equality because the French state that emerged from the revolution after going through a certain different uh, sets of changes, emerged as a secular state. This never happened before, that a country, the regime, defined itself in secular terms. It's not Christian anymore. These people were followers, let's say, for example, of Voltaire and people like that. You know, Robespierre, all those guys. And if you uh, define yourself as a secular state, if France is a secular Zach and not a Christian Zach, then it doesn't make any sense to have laws uh, that discriminate on the basis of religious belief. You get what I'm saying? If the state is secular, then as far as the state is concerned, what you believe is your business. On Monday I can be a Jew, on Tuesday I can switch to Christian, on Wednesday I can switch to Muslim, on Thursday I can change my mind again and be a Jew, the next day I can be a Mormon, I can do whatever I want. Why not? No, why not? Why not? Um, what is the stake here? And the reason I'm changing is because I changed my mind. Somebody gave me a good argument in favor of Christian, so I went to Christian. Then I heard a better argument in favor of Buddhism, so I switched to Buddhism. Then I met a girl who wanted me to become Jewish. I could, it's, it's up to me. You understand? So the state shouldn't say like this. You want to go to college? You have to be a Catholic. What if I uh, change my mind? I don't want to be a Catholic. So the state should say like this, as long as you're a good citizen and you obey the laws and you're loyal to the country and you serve in the army, whatever it is, that's all that counts. And then you should be free to vote and be just like everybody else. So this idea had been beyond imagination even in the time of Mendelssohn. But five years later, it was a reality. And the ideas that he started... um. Got, as they say, you know, became practical in a totally unexpected way, and the story's not over. When France was the only country like this, all the other countries stayed the old-fashioned way. But if you know the history of France, um, they had the revolution in 1789-1790, and in 1790-1791 they gave the Jews the civil rights. In 1793 they killed the king and the queen, I think it was. Then all of Europe ganged up and attacked France, and France beat them. This is when they made the Marseillaise. And the French went on to conquer gigantic territories. Uh, and when the French conquered the territories, for example, next to France is Italy. But not at that time. Italy was a collection of states. It was about 15 countries in Italy. There was the Kingdom of Piedmont. There was the Duchy of Milan. There was the Republic of Venice. There was the, the, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, the Kingdom of Naples, the Papal that you see what I mean? All kind of different Medinas. Each one was a separate independent Medina. And in all the Medinas, they had ghettos and all kind of discrimination against the Jews. But when the French army came in there in the middle 1790s, conquering France, this is under the new general Napoleon, um, they not only physically conquered the territories, but they imposed the French system on the conquered territories, which means... One of the items that they imposed was there's no more 
discrimination against the Jews. The Jews have complete and total civil rights, just like everybody else, and the ghettos are abolished. And all of a sudden, the Jews can live wherever they want and go into any kind of business they want. The French also conquered the Rhineland, you know, whole areas of Germany. And again, if you live in Cologne or Bonn or Dusseldorf or those kind of places, all of a sudden, if you're Jewish, or there's no discrimination against you, you're free and equal like everybody else. It was like Belgium became part of France. It was a shocking. And then, under Napoleon, who led the French, they conquered Germany, and in many places, I'll give you the best example, take Frankfurt. Frankfurt, I said in an earlier podcast, had a terrible ghetto. Uh, very narrow and salubrious. All of a sudden, Napoleon came and says, ice ghetto, you can do whatever you want. The Germans didn't like it, but the French forced them. Uh, now, this lasted until 1815, when the French were totally defeated. When that happened, so uh, France retained the civil rights, but all the other countries withdrew them, and they went back to square one. The Jews don't have any civil rights. Um, and in many, many places, they had to go back to the old ghettos, or if not the ghettos, something like that, and full of discrimination. And they're now in, in uh, occurred a Jewish civil rights movement, which took 55 years. Only by 1870 did the Jews in the countries of Europe get their uh, complete and total civil rights. And again, it was in the context of a quid pro quo. All of this means that Mendelssohn left a very funny kind of uh, legacy because he started the ball rolling for the Jews to get their civil rights, which was huge. But the civil rights was not the way we say it in America today, and this is a very liberal country, that you can be as much of a Satmar Chassid as you want, and uh, uh, maybe they can't get away, you know, the New York Times now with not teaching any English, but it's pretty doggone liberal in this country what you can get away with. It's legal. That's not what it was in Europe, and it isn't today. If you live in France, you've got to learn the French stuff. And you live in Germany and Austria, you got to learn the Geisha stuff. You live in Sweden and in Holland, you have to learn the Geisha stuff. And that's just how it goes. Uh, the, the quid pro quo was exacted. And for the most part, the Jews um, became not religious, not Shomer Mitzvahs as a result of all this. So it's not exactly the fault of Mendelssohn, but he started the ball rolling, and in the from mind, became associated with all of this. You see? And when you throw into the fact that he never supplied his own children with anything like a, a yeshiva education to fortify themselves against the trends of modernity. So either he was dumb and he didn't see what was going to happen, or he thought it was not so bad. And uh, I'm sure, there's no question in my mind, that he and his wife wanted that their children should be, as we would say today, modern Orthodox. There's no question in my mind that he wanted... If he would have his way, his kids would be highly acculturated, very German. They would win prizes. They'd be real chashav. But they would be Shomer Shabbos. The wife would be keep Taras Mishpacha. Well, good luck. <laughs> Doesn't quite work out that way. And because of that, overall, he left the impression, because of the, the, the cause he knocked away two of the legs and didn't replace it with any other strong leg of the chair, so Mendelssohn, in the long run, became seen as kind of a negative phenomenon, despite the fact that he personally was observant. And uh, there's what to talk about. And in the 19th century, like I say before, 
you know, sometimes the from were in favor, sometimes they're not in favor. But generally speaking, I think today most people would uh, view him in this way. I leave with this point, and I'm almost out of time. This has nothing to do with Reform Judaism or conservative. This has nothing to do with, you know, the Haskalah, as you generally think about it. This has nothing to do with all these modern trends, all the rest of it. He was one guy who had his life, but he the legacy left behind him was not identical with the lifestyle that he personally pursued. And uh, in a long-term historical way of looking, you know, is he held responsible for this? You know, the, the from world in general, you know, came to the conclusion he is responsible for this. So you could pick it apart and you'd have debates on this. And if I was in a graduate seminar, that would be exactly a debate that I would encourage. But for the purposes of the podcast, I just wanted to lay out some of the complexities involved with Moses Mendelssohn. Um, that'll be it. Now I'm, I'm shutting this down.